The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. A new number one team, is it the right one? Will we get some separation? And Michigan presses on what's the latest as the Wolverines try to close the season with or without their head coach. This is the College Game Day podcast for Wednesday, November 15th. Reese Davis here along with Pete Thamel. A thousand uh, thanks and gratitude to all of you for taking care of business while I was a little under the weather on Monday. Uh, Pete, you guys did great as always. Um, one of the topics I wanted to hit right off the top here, uh, let's let's start with the new rankings. I think it's as most people believe the teams are ranked up. If you say the best teams, uh, no disrespect to Ohio State, which is a terrific team, Michigan terrific team, Washington terrific team, but based on not what Georgia's done the last two years, but really what they've done the last two weeks. They've probably proven themselves to be worthy of number one this season. Yeah, I feel like we were going to inevitably get some sort of shakeup now that uh, you know two of the undefeateds that really hadn't been tested are going to be tested here. And, and I feel like... I feel like people always felt like Georgia maybe had a better roster and certainly the last two years, which aren't supposed to factor in, are going to inherently bias folks into into just having expectations for this year's Georgia team. The the way they disposed of uh, a very good Ole Miss team on Saturday um, clearly was authoritative to the committee. Um, we are definitely in a bit of like the committee's twisted logic phase of all this now, um, but that's, that's okay. I don't get too worried about that stuff until the uh, – until the end, um, you know, I might have had Georgia number one all along, Reese, when it when it comes down to it. So certainly wasn't uh, certainly wasn't any um, you know any shock that they that they ended up there, and they 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 certainly have the roster and class of talent to command that spot. And uh, yeah, it'll be fun to see the next few weeks here um, as they go to Knoxville, as they uh, as they you know play in the SEC championship game, as we assume, you know, really how they how they stack up. The ebbs and flows of the season when you do what we do, even though we just try to reflect what we see, we have to make judgments on it or else you're terribly boring, means that um, occasionally fan bases are going to become unhappy with you, as the Georgia fan base did in the preseason with me when I had Michigan as the preseason number one, simply because I said I wanted to see the quarterback play. Because he had, you know, he hadn't been able to grasp opportunities in the past. And now I've seen the quarterback play and he's real and he's a dude. And, he's spectacular. And, and because of that, uh, Georgia, you know, Georgia's number one. I don't think they're infallible. I'm not sure that there is quite the gap that there was last year, you know, between Georgia and the and the other teams. But they're number one. I think they're the best, and they've got a quarterback, and they've got weapons, and Brock Bowers is back. And I think maybe the greatest compliment I saw anyone pay Georgia over the weekend, and it probably applies to this trip this weekend that they're going to take to Knoxville, which all season long has been identified as the potential snake pit, although I don't know that many people believe that anymore after Tennessee's trip to Columbia on Saturday. But the greatest compliment I saw paid to the Bulldogs was, do they respect you enough to blow you out? And <laughs> apparently, apparently, I wish I'd thought of it because it's a great line. It's a good line. But they, but they apparently did so to Ole Miss. And I also think that the committee showed some respect to Missouri. They're like, oh, wait a minute. 
they did that to Ole Miss, who we thought was a top 10 team and probably is still borderline mm-hmm. top 10 team. And Missouri hung with them and had the ball late and had a chance. Okay, we're going to, you know, I mean, they would Missouri go up five spots. Yeah, they yeah. didn't just move up because they, you know, beat the stuffing out of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I thought that was a, another mark in Georgia's favor in the rankings last night. Yeah. So my medium uh, lukewarm take here is that this Georgia team is the least talented of the three Georgia teams that, you know, the two championship teams in this one, just in terms of a high, high, high class of talent and totality of talent. Now, it's really not a hot take if you think about it. I believe two years ago, they set a record for players drafted, right? Like, I think that was an overall record. And there was some defensive record, too, of high end in the draft where, where they were. So that's not something scorching hot, but they probably aren't as marauding up front as uh, their predecessors. They're very good, right? Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're zits on the Mona Lisa here, Reese. But um, I also perhaps think that the world is a little flatter this year, too. So just because they aren't quite the high class, highest, highest class of talent as they have in the, the last two years doesn't mean they're still not ahead of the rest of the field. Mm-hmm. Here, here are the numbers. In the last two drafts, Pete, 13 defensive players taken, seven first-rounders, four first-round defensive linemen in the last two years. So I don't... I don't think you're, you know, saying you sound like a guy who hosted the NFL draft. Or yeah, he's saying things that aren't outrageous, you know, yeah. that are outrageous, I should say. Uh, but Georgia, number one, I think the closest team to them right now is Michigan and Michigan for all of the hoopla and all of the stuff going on around Jim Harbaugh, which will continue this week. And you will continue to do uh, the spectacular professional job that you've done as you continue to cover that this week in the hearing coming up on Friday, went into Penn State and beat them without throwing a forward pass in the second half. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at that. that. Joey Galloway and I were having this conversation off air last night. Uh, He asked me a simple question. What do you make of that? And I think there's one school of thought that says, you know, okay, well, they wanted to they wanted to avoid Penn State's pass rush and, you know, probably the strongest parts of Penn State's defense, which is pretty good overall, would be the guys that they have to cover. I don't know that Michigan ha- Michigan has really good receivers. Don't know if they have elite ones. Penn State's got good cover guys. Chop Robinson's back. You've got a good pass rush. So you just you just don't deal with it. That's one way, and that might have been part of the thinking. There's also a there is also a big part of me that thinks that somehow that was a, somehow a proverbial middle finger, you know, to to everybody in the way saying, you know what, how about we just line up and run over you on the road, road and the game, and also might have been a little dig to say we also don't believe that if we played for six weeks that your offense could score enough points to beat us. So you know there I, there was a lot of there was a lot of bravado uh, in that decision, I think, that was as much about the mindset and mentality of how Michigan is approaching the rest of this season as there was some type of strategic advantage. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Joel Clatt on the broadcast made a really good point early that uh, one of the tackles, I believe it was Carson Barnhart, got beaten three times early. And I feel like there was one play where Chop Robinson got to the quarterback and like he had clearly had the snap count. I mean, he went 
I mean, he teed off and, you know, when like, like you see Chase Young and some others do this, like when they, you, when you are just dialed into that snap count and you are just like, you are by the tackle before he gets out of his stance. Um, and you do wonder with an offensive line coach calling the game, if that's something you say, okay, well, that would be a destructive play that could beat us, right? Mm-hmm. That would be like the Iowa formula to win when you can't move the ball. So we're just going to keep doing it. Now, I, I do believe they attempted a pass and got a PI in the yeah, second they half. Did. Yeah, so, they did. but no, like no official. It sounds so much better to say no, no official. Oh yeah, no, it's way, it's yeah. way, it's way more fun. But I do think one of the things that that I saw since we've already picked at a zit or two on Georgia today is that this Michigan offensive line again, the last two offensive lines won the Joe Moore Award. Right. right. So they were really, really, really high end and synchronized and played well together. This offense line is very good. I don't think it's in the same category as the last two, which is maybe to say it's the 10th best instead of the best. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think when Michigan is going to have some high stakes tests here, right? There's Ohio State and then likely beyond. Um mm-hmm. If they are who they who we think they are. And that will be interesting to watch to see if a high end defensive line can really take advantage of them uh, of them. So, again, all props to Michigan. They absolutely mauled Penn State. They put them in the fetal position to the point where they had to fire their offensive coordinator. Like that's Mm -hmm. a that is the epitome of a dominating win when it's that level of uh, that level of domination. So. Um, yeah, what a just what what a fittingly bizarre stretch to all this. And I just don't see in the preseason, maybe, or maybe even in the early part of the season, some of this un- informed by, you know, at least one time I remember, maybe a couple, when Ohio State drew this game, Maryland, I mean, on the road uh, prior to Michigan week. Now Michigan has it this year. You know, Maryland gave them a fight. A couple of times and one time against a really good team. I've forgotten exactly which year it was. One of uh, Meyer's really good teams. Haskins ran the ball in. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And like, um, and like, did McFarland go for like near 300 yards rushing or something? A big, big day for Maryland. So, and I, I look, Taylor probably remembers the year when Maryland, because you, you missed a two point conversion pass in the end zone, didn't you? Was it 18 yeah, it was or 19, 18. Taylor? 18? 18. Tyrell Pigrom uh, with the two point conversion just missed the open guy. Brutal. Missed the open oh, guy. yeah. Right. He so was maybe, open. maybe I'm being overly informed by that particular game. Seems as if there might have been one more of Maryland gave them a fight for a while. Yeah. La- last to, year played pretty well, too. Yeah. Okay. So it's hard, but it's hard for me to see in large part because of the direction that Maryland's going. And in, uh, and, and even though Maryland played Michigan pretty well last year in Ann Arbor earlier in the season, I don't see this as being a, a big opportunity for the proverbial step on a rate game on Saturday. I, I, I don't see it anyway. Do you? I just flash back to what Penn State did down there a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So hard to... By a thousand. They actually yeah, scored. Like, I think it was like 55 yeah. to 15 or something like that. Yeah. It was, you know... I, Taylor probably knows the score off the top of his head, but it was a uh, it was a thorough flogging and domination. Um, so, yeah. And again, Michigan can win this game without passing. Like, no problem. Like, but, they, but they should. You know what? Galloway made this point last night. Uh, two Joey Galloway mentions on a podcast is certainly over the quota. But, <laughs> you know, he, he made this point last night. Just because you don't have to pass doesn't mean that you shouldn't. 
because he was talking about rhythm between quarterback and wide receivers, especially this time of year, how it's Interesting. developing. Said yeah. you get, he said you get into a rhythm as a receiver, much like a shooter in basketball. And at some point, probably against Ohio State, um, they're going to have to throw the ball. Sure. And he likened it, perhaps because we were watching the Champions Classic, he likened it to not letting a guy shoot or not letting a guy play and then late in the game throwing him in and say, okay, I need you to make yeah. a couple of threes. Yeah. You know, he said not that they can't do it. Come off but the bench it make, cold. It yeah. makes it more difficult. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a good point. To a guy that caught a lot of balls, I would listen to his. his uh, he would know yeah. a little more about receiver rhythm than anyone on this air pod. Yeah, I, I no, I don't disagree at all. I thought it was a really interesting yeah. take, and I will be, I'll be interested to, interested to see how much Michigan throws with that type of thing in mind. Even if they can win without passing on Saturday, will they, will they purposely throw a little bit more in anticipation of getting ready for what's to come the following week with the challenge of of Ohio State? Yeah, I wonder how much of that decision making was McCarthy at the line of scrimmage on looks. You know I don't what know. I, mean? I don't know how much yeah. autonomy he has there. And so I'd be out over my skis if I project anything, but it would be interesting to know guy who's played as many games as him probably um and is a you know wonderful football player, right? Yeah. Smart, good Great. decision maker, yeah. like Heisman caliber quarterback. Can he go up there and just say, well, we're gonna keep doing it. We're gonna keep doing it. I it would be interesting to know the the breakdown of what how much of that was diagnosed at the line or how much of that just came in from the sideline and went. What do you make of how they've handled things so far? What do you have in terms of uh, any inkling of what might happen on Friday and how Michigan will will handle it going forward? So uh, I've probably been asked about 50 times this week what's going to happen in court on Friday. And uh, I can I can I can reflect a little bit on some of the structural things maybe to expect. But as far as a ruling race, that's just way out over my skis. Right. right. I'm not I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, and, and uh, but, you know. Let, yeah. let me inter- interrupt you because you'll never say this, and I'm going to say it. There's not one thing, I, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Pete. I don't recall in any of your coverage at any point in time in any of this, you offering an opinion. Maybe if you did on College Football Live or some such thing, I know for a fact, because I know you, that you prefaced it by saying exactly that. In any of your coverage, it has been straight by the book. So I wouldn't I wouldn't expect you to, uh, you know, offer have any type of conjecture on what a judge in Washtenaw County, Michigan might do. But just in terms of of how this how this looks, how it's going to play out, uh, you know, in terms of uh, structurally, as you said, and how Michigan might be preparing if you've been able to ascertain anything of that nature. Sure. So we'll dive into a little legalese here. Uh, there's a retired judge from the uh, Washtenaw County Courthouse who I've been g- going back and forth on email, and he's just been kind of explaining it to me. He's an actual law professor at uh, or uh, teaches, I think he teaches criminology at UM Dearborn, but he sat in that bench for 25 years. So he knows the 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 basics of what to expect. And um, essentially for this hearing, the same thresholds are going to take uh, take hold for what they when they tried to get the emergency TRO the other night. And we can won't bore you with all of them, uh, but irreparable harm becomes a big standard here again. Can you prove irreparable harm? Now, this judge correctly noted that they may have a hard time getting an emergency TRO 
improve irreparable harm. And his theory was in part because Michigan football did just find the first three games of the season without Jim Harbaugh. So, and then, you know, he obviously, he's been noting both sides and he, he, he did tell me he has a Michigan flag on his, uh, <laughs> on his flagpole in his house. So <laughs> he certainly, uh, certainly was, was very open and, and funny about his, uh, where his biases go, but he's just given, he's just sent me a couple like lengthy emails that have really like broken down the court uh, process here. I think whether, if this is a pure preliminary injunction hearing, and it's not 100% certain talking to people involved in the case, if it is, there's the ability for each side, so there's three sides here, Michigan, Harbaugh, and the Big Ten, to call witnesses. It is not certain if the judge is going to allow that or not, or there's just three lawyers or lawyers representing the three parties are going to talk, and then the judge is going to make a decision off of that. So um, Jim Harbaugh saying he was going to go, I think, to the hearing. I think a lot of people interpreted him as maybe he's he was going to testify. Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of figures in my 20 years doing this, like testify in court, um, you know, as, as Jim Harbaugh, you know, has has talked about thundering in front of a jury. The one thing I'm sure of is there won't be a jury in this one. So that's, that's, that, that is, that is one thing. Um, and you know, if you're Michigan and if you're Harbaugh's lawyers, do you want him to take the stand mm -hmm. right now and, you know, and have to testify under oath? Like, is that a distraction? Does that help your case hurt your case? I don't know. So I think there is a little ambiguity again, from talking to people directly involved in the case of whether or not we are going to see a full uh, sort of, Perry Mason trial, right? With witnesses and cross-examination and all that stuff or not. But I would think by mid-afternoon on Friday um, that the judge makes some kind of ruling in uh, in this. And we will know at that point whether or not Jim Harbaugh can coach these last two games. Uh, I've said this a few times, Reese, the, uh, you know, the, the way the Big Ten wrote this kept them out of trouble if the if the TRO or injunction happens here. And by that, they they wrote it as the he is suspended for the end of the regular season. So the suspension is not a game suspension, which would eventually have to carry over in theory if it was upheld in the courts, et cetera. So and people had talked about an indefinite suspension going in. Well, they they made it extremely definite. So there's not, uh, I think, for less exposure to them, right? It starts, it ends, everybody tries to move on, was was my perceived intent of how the Big Ten, uh, of how the Big Ten wrote that suspension. You know what I what I would really like to see, Pete? You know what would be really fun if they allow cameras in the courtroom? What if what if they put what if they put Jim on the witness stand and he said, you don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that sideline. You need me on that sideline and goes full Nathan Jessup. And then would the lawyer say, did you order the sign stealing? And then we'd get to the bottom of it just like that. That would be amazing. That's why although I, Jim, I although yeah. Jim, ca Jim cast himself more in the, in the Tom Cruise role. Yes, it would be a uh, delightful surprise to see Jim Harbaugh with his hand on a Bible uh, I, on Friday in that. Uh, I'm not ruling it out because the paradigms of the case are still a little bit murky to the people involved. But I'm, you know, I'm skeptical of that. If for only reason I can't really think of a lot of 
A lot of dudes who've testified in court in his position in college sports in the 20 years I've done it. I'm sure there's one or two if we really rack our brain. Maybe old Phil Fulmer had to testify in some of that. Kirk Cluffle yeah. as Ryan McGee joins us here. He would probably yeah. he would probably know Phillips, uh, you know, some of Phillips' history there when they were uh was that over Albert Means, maybe SEC yeah. Day, oh, yeah. uh, over Albert Means and uh Logan Young and what was the what's there were there are three boosters in Memphis that were notorious of sorts, one for Alabama, one for Tennessee, and one for Georgia. Uh <laughs> what what was the Tennessee guy's name? Yeah, it, well, it always comes back to Memphis. I flew over Memphis yeah. on Monday, and I was like, I looked down there and just laughed because Marty and I were in Memphis two weekends ago, and it all it always comes back to Memphis. But it, well, it was yeah. Do you remember the guy's name? What's the guy's yeah, name? I'm gonna look uh, it up. I I I, I would have remembered it if you hadn't asked me. Yeah, the, yeah, but it, but yeah, but yes, the answer is that yes, Philip Fulmer did appear in court. Okay. Um, though no one in Knoxville ever wants to remember any of those things. Like they, you know, Phil won a championship 25 years ago, so everybody's always worried about is Phil okay I always go back to when the day that Jeremy Pruitt was fired I mean Pete remembers this so they held a press conference and of course you know the fired coach is never there Mm -hmm. um and and everybody's sitting there and the entire gist of the press conference was to make sure that Philip Fulmer was okay I want to go he's not okay he's the athletic director like he 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 oversaw all of this but but yeah so the point is yes Roy Adams Oh, like that, there, oh yeah, yeah, I that was the guy's face. name. He I was. His face. Well, you oh. want to talk about a, a character in the history and the annals of the sport? Oh yeah. my goodness, no way. He's Buddy Garrity, like you know, the, the, Buddy Garrity exists for a reason, right? Yeah, and there were three. There were three rival Buddy Garrities who yeah. all, on some level, were oh, yeah. friends, and then all were like continuously trying to cut each other off at the knees and set each other up. The guy, the Georgia guy, the, uh, alleged, all allegedly, I have no proof of any of this, uh, all allegedly, although the Alabama guy got caught, um, Alabama, Tennessee and Georgia guy, they were all going at it in Memphis. And I think part of it, if lore is to be believed, Ryan, part of it was for the glory of their, of the school that they loved or rooted for. And part of it was to win the rivalry among the three of them. Too. Oh, no, no, oh, 100%. And that's, again, Buddy Garrity, right? You yeah, know, exactly. At the end of the day, Buddy Garrity had two goals. Number one, that the Panthers won all the games. And number two, that no one else sold any cars anywhere near him, right? So, I mean, that that's all. That's always the way that it works. It's the way it's always going to work. It's just now, you know, they now allow these guys to have parties and raise money, you yep. know, officially. I- <laughs> you know, I do want to think, you know, the irony in all of this, and I've, I've talked about it. I've been pretty bemused by some of the reaction that, you know, preseason, I loved Michigan, hated Georgia. Now, you know, now for some reason, I hate Michigan. I, I get the biggest kick. I love characters in college football, and I get the biggest kick out of Harbaugh. So while I was a little under the weather on Monday, you know, people would very nicely check in later. I want to thank Jim for the Monday news conference in which he gave me the stock line that I just went to continuously. I said, I did a few extra pushups. I ate an apple and I became the iron wall that the virus uh, <laughs> shattered up against, you know, so <laughs> he's, he's the best. I he's mean, too good. He, he's too good, man. He's too he's, good there. He's just weird enough. That's what yeah. I've always liked. By, and and, and I, I don't, I don't know him now as well as I knew him 10 years ago, 10 years ago, because Jim, you know, owned an IndyCar team. And so, mm-hmm. Back in the in the RPM Tonight days, Reese, I would go cover IndyCar races, and Jim was co-owner of this team called Panther Racing, and he was at the racetrack all the time. And it, and all the other team owners are walking around wearing you know wearing you know, just Dockers and, and a golf shirt. Jim would show up to 
you know, the whatever 400 at Dover full fire suit. Oh, I believe like, it. <laughs> like full black and white Pennzoil fire suit. I have a great picture of me with Jim at the Dover Speedway and he's full fire suit. But yeah, so I knew actually knew him better then when he was still playing for the Colts than I do now, but he's he's just weird enough, right? When you interview him, he tells you a lot, but he also gives you at least two quotes where you go, "What was he what did he what was he just talking about?" Like, you know, yeah. like the so I, I he's he is a character and um who hope he'll stick around but, college football. Well, it might be a good idea if he kept that fire suit on hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right now. yeah 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 <laughs> but you know anyway it's uh it's an interesting thing uh where they're ranked what they're going through and fascinating that if this is upheld and not changed that one of the best teams in the country will have played half of its regular season schedule without its head coach on the sideline who also by the way in my judgment is one of the best coaches in college football so it's not like they're just losing some you know figurehead ceo guy they're they're losing their guy who's sort of sets the standard for the program and you know I, I, it hasn't it didn't manifest itself saturday i don't think it will this saturday against maryland whether it will if he is not there against ohio state whether it shows up then um remains to be seen uh, since i wasn't here monday i just want to touch briefly on something and we won't dive into the whole coaching carousel thing we'll talk about some games this weekend but i i started talking to a lot of people yesterday of accumulating theories about Texas A&M because, you know, it was on, it was somebody put out on the internet that the last coach to leave Texas A&M of his own volition was Paul Bryant when mama called and he went to Alabama in 1958. Um, You know, they, they've got everything that you're supposed to need to be elite. They've got money. They've got arguably the most loyal alumni base anywhere. It's a huge alumni base. They've got facilities. They're located in a geographical region, which gives them access to talent in Texas and in Louisiana and really you know, across the South. They can recruit just about anywhere. And yet, historically, they've been average. They, they haven't even had the zeniths or the mercurial moments that, say, Auburn has had because sometimes that comparison is made they're overshadowed by an in-state school the state university you know the the perceived uh you know white collar university versus the blue collar university and you know that they have this perpetual uphill climb well even if even if you buy into that notion in the last 14 football seasons auburn has won a national championship come 13 seconds from winning another one and one game away from making a playoff in a third season. Now, in between there, they've cratered and fired coaches and paid a bunch of buyouts and, you know, it's been a lot of other things, but they've at least had these moments to grasp. AM hasn't had, they haven't sniffed anything like that. They, you know, they had Johnny Manziel and they upset Alabama. They had a game, you know, they had a game and a player. And that dates back pretty much forever. They yep. won a national championship, the only one of the poll era, though they have a couple of other ones, in 1939, and not close since. One undefeated season in between there. I think just one, but at least one in which I know they were on probation and didn't qualify for the SWC championship. They won. Did they end the Minnesota juggernaut, Reese, that we yeah. all had to become yeah. familiar with? Yeah, 1939. Yeah, I, yeah. I, could, 1939. I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. no. Absolutely. But they, you know, they've won one Big 12 title 
1998. That's the only thing they won since the SWC broke up. And that was a pretty significant upset because it knocked Kansas State out of the national championship. Brandon so they Stewart. Were not, they were not expected to win that yeah. game. They lost three games that year, too. Yeah, right. Brandon Stewart. Yeah. 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 Sir Parker. Oh, but Sir my, Parker. Good but reference. Parker. Nice. But my but my point is this. They've they've gone and they've tried to hire the hot coach. They've spent a bunch of money. They've got everything in the world. They've hired accomplished coaches. Why? Why are they mediocre? You know that I don't it's, know the answer to it. You know there are a lot of different theories that I hear, and none of them, you know, totally move me or persuade me as to why they've been mediocre for so long. Our it's friend the, Dave Wilson, who joined us uh, on Monday to talk about AM, could write like a 5,000 word essay on the underachieving soul of that place, um, which he has he has a uh, kindred connection to. But it's a fascinating question, right? Like I was talking to somebody uh, on the staff there this weekend as all the Jimbo drama was going down. And he was like, this is a top five job and we have really good players. Um, and it's just, yeah, it is it is it is anomalous that they haven't been able to just figure it out and put it. If you think of the, the places that have won titles that have been relevant, that have, that have sort of reached some of those zeniths over this basically, you know, generation of them not doing it. It's, it's, we, it's, yeah, it's, it's surreal that they haven't been able to do it. And Ryan knows more about this than me because he travels those roads in the sec more, but I, uh, it's, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon. I've heard it, a number of theories, Ryan. What's yours? You know, sometimes it's just who you are. You know, I mean, I, I go back to the 12th man. So I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. Growing up, I believe that the story of the 12th man, e, you know, I, I believe that the E. King Gill, the story I'd always heard was that he's in the stands, they're playing in the Cotton Bowl, he comes out of the stands and wins the game. No, he never played. He didn't play. He right? never played. And, and what's crazy is it wasn't until just a few years ago when I – now I go there at least once a year, usually multiple times a year, when I look upon the statue, when you know that story, E. King Gill, when I thought he won the Cotton Bowl, or at least even played in the Cotton Bowl, when I see him standing there with his helmet at the ready, it's inspiring. When you know the actual story, he's just standing there. Like, like I, I get it. You're at the ready, whatever. But to me, it is the embodiment of what the program is. And I love that place. I love the tradition. I love the yell practice. I love the state. The facilities are second to none. Um, they have traditions on almost too many traditions. Like you can't hardly keep track of all of it. There's, there's the, right. The cemetery outside of the stadium where all of the lady revelies have been laid to rest is tilt toward, toward the stadium. So they can watch the games, and then when they when they close that end zone, Pete, they put a scoreboard in front of the cemetery, so so they can all like watch scores live. <laughs> this is what the place is. The passion is second to none. The money is second to none. But yeah, I say it all the time, and it makes them so mad. Nineteen thirty nine, number one film at the box office, gone with a wind. You know, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas on Monday, and they're all waiting on Sam Pittman to be fired. And they keep talking to me about Jimbo Fisher. And, and I said, you know, the last time that they won a, a, ter a championship of any kind, the guy from down the street was the president of the United States and still had three years to go. I mean, it's been a minute. And so I just – sometimes it's just – it's the Red Sox, right? It's the Cubs. It's it's who – it's the Jets. It's who you are. And it's a really, really difficult 
thing. I don't know that there's a solution. I really don't. I love Ross Bjork. Uh, they have figured out all the other sports, but football is the one that eludes them, and it just doesn't make any sense. But it's one of those that if they ever do win a championship, I'm not sure they're going to know what to do with themselves because there is a part of them that kind of like, you know, this is who we are. They like being the little brother because it, you keep a chip on your shoulder all the time. But at some point, you have to win something. And it just doesn't. I, I said when Jimbo got the job, if he doesn't win, I'm not sure who will. And the reality is he didn't. And now I don't know who's going to. You know, I, I do think the one thing, the one thing I'll say is, and I thought the Jimbo Fisher hire was a terrific one. And yeah. I think people who criticize it now are kind of looking back and with the benefit of what has happened. I'm not going to sit here and argue that he did a tremendous job. He clearly did not because he was being highly compensated and they didn't win championships. And that's what he was hired to do. Um, but he was an accomplished coach and I still believe him to be a good coach. It got sideways there, you know, for whatever reason, and he wasn't able to turn it around and that's on him. You're not going to find a, you might find one that does a better job. You might find one that is a better fit because I've heard some people say that he was, he just never fit with all of the things you're talking about and all the traditions and, and things that are so important to Aggies. That's probably, probably depends on who you talk to, whether that is the case, but they may find someone who actually gets it done and gets him over the hump, but they're not going to find a more proven commodity than Jimbo Fisher when they hired him. So it's really fascinating which direction they will go, uh, whether they you know, will go for uh, someone like a Jeff Trailer who has those roots in the state of Texas, you know, can mend some of the fences because, you know, I think, I think there's some, uh, you know, hard feelings maybe at Haynes Kings high school, for instance, with him and some of the high school coaches there, or whether, you know, they'll go more national, whether they'll chase Elko, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different ways they could go. Guys, let's talk a little bit about. A I huge... want to know who, uh, who McGee would hire. I want McGee's who, who'd hire. Who'd you hire, Ryan? I mean, I'm a trailer guy. I love him. I think that he could fix it. I think that it has to be, and I think Dave Wilson has said this, you have to be a Texas guy. And 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 that's overplayed, I think, in a lot of places. You know, you got to be a Michigan man or you got to be or whatever. We, we hear that all the time. But it is its own country. I mean, it's the Republic of Texas. And That's you fair. have to understand how it works within the state. Um, so you've got to, you have to find, I mean, we saw it with TCU a year ago. You know, Sonny Dykes knows how the state works. Mm -hmm. I, I realize I'm saying this when they're having a, a crushingly disappointing season, but you have to understand the culture and how your state works in, in Texas, I think, more than anywhere else, because you got to keep them within the borders. And your job's about to get, I think, a lot harder in, in this new SEC going forward. But to me, I like Trailer just simply because he understands it. Um, but you know, I, that's not they, they won't do that. They, they'll go. They'll. they'll I, I think they'll go for for big time name or whatever. And but they've uh, already they've already won the press conference when they yeah. hired Jimbo. Yeah. And I rail against this all the time. Take the L in the press conference if you get the guy you truly believe in and you get the right guy. Right. You know, now don't try to prove you're the smartest kid in class, you know, so that you don't care about the press conference and you're going to show them how smart you are by hiring the next hot guy, the rising star. But don't think you have to hire the big name so that everybody pats you on the back and say, man, what a get. How did you pry him away from insert school here? Hire the right guy. 
have you know have some courage about it. If you believe it's trailer, hire him. If you need to go after the big fish, do that. Whatever it is, you know, go do it. And you know, it's a really it's a huge huge moment for Texas A and M because the team they despise the most that all of their songs are about. Uh, the fight song reference, the Aggie War him references. They're coming in back into your league, and they're coming on a hot streak. And they are apparently, no matter how hard they try, incapable of losing a game because they're going to get to the playoff and make Pete buy me a steak. But Texas <laughs> is coming back, you know, to the to the SEC to the same conference that AM's in. This is a huge moment for AM because they have missed an opportunity of being in the SEC while Texas was in a conference that did not have as much clout, did not uh, have the same type of credibility that the SEC has had over the last decade or so. And A&M had a shot, and they didn't make anything, didn't make as much of it as they should have. And now this is a huge hire for them. And, and they're loaded. They are loaded. If they can keep the talent in the building, Pete, they're yes. loaded. I, mean, I was just going to ask you, do you really think they're talented? Yes, and, okay. and I know, and I because know that I, the star rankings only mean left, so much, though, you know. Yeah, yeah. but but on, on, but but that de- that defensive line, amen. I, yeah. I, I'm I'm telling yeah. you about I'm telling you about the team I saw in person at Ole Miss two weeks ago, and I think I said it to you guys, knowing that the water had been poisoned, knowing that everybody felt they knew where it was going, those kids played so hard in the second half, and mm. I didn't see that coming because you know they they had the big sure. ejection and they got down mm. a couple scores. And they should have won the football game. And so mm-hmm. if they can keep him in the building, but I just base it on on what other coaches in the conference tell me. You know, every week Marty and I do these things where we call the head coach and and you know immediately if those guys are just blowing smoke or if they mean it. And when Lane Kiffin's talking about how talented they are, and you know, when and when every coach in the conference is telling well, that me that actually made me skeptical because I think he wanted right. I felt like he wanted to overblow it in he, order he, to he like, did, but 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 also but but anyway, I had those conversations in July though with Kirby Smart. Yeah and I had sure. it with Nick Saban. Yeah. And I and it wasn't it wasn't they bought their players. It, it was a yeah. legit conversation about yeah. talent. So I I mean, off the bus, they are super intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and so I think if you can keep some of those guys in the building, then you're you're building off a baseline that's maybe better than people realize. Besting game is brought to you by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Big game on Saturday that we haven't touched on yet, and we should right now is Washington undefeated going on the road at Oregon State. Um, they're, they're an underdog. I think, uh, our researcher Gil Bransford told me last night, the line has moved to two and a half. Haven't checked it this morning, going to look at it right now as we speak, but you have, uh, an undefeated team, a national championship contender going on the road against a really good team. And yeah, it's a two and a half point, uh, spread right now. Beave is favored there. Uh, final PAC 12 game to be played at research stadium. Uh, for all of Oregon State's up and down history, they have a, a pretty good history of pulling upsets, most notably against USC, whether it was uh, 1967 when they beat OJ and Ron Yeri, I believe uh, both of whom, no OJ did, uh, become number one overall picks. Um, that team was called the Giant Killers, and they beat USC 3 nothing. Uh, they beat them in 2006. They beat them in 2008. Uh, they took down a Washington team that was headed for a BCS Bowl in 2001. So, now, look, there's a lot of history there. 
But the present, this is, this is a big test for Washington because you start looking around the country at national championship contenders. Who's won a huge road game? Texas, Michigan, if you're going to define that game. And probably depends on how you define this as whether it's huge or not. It's sort of like the old Gene Stallings theory. If you don't think this is a big game, just try losing it and see what happens. But, you know, then it will become a big game. But nobody has a lot of marquee road wins on their resume at this point. I think this might qualify if Washington can go in as a round of field goal underdog, tough place to play, and beat a really good Oregon State team on Saturday night. And, you know, uh, you, you win two road games in the span of three weeks because that USC game that kept us all awake, you know, two weekends ago. I, and also, too, I think about the Heisman race. Michael Penix Jr. has the best stage this weekend. Everyone else oh, yeah. is, is playing no one. And so if he has the type of performance that, quite frankly, he, he puts out there every single weekend – and he does it on the road, you know, in a ranked game, in a statement game for the playoff. Then, um, you know, I, 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 I keep this Heisman race fascinates me because literally no one's playing anyone this weekend except for him. And, and so I'm curious to see what he does. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's if we're talking about road wins, and again, I, and I'm I like to cluster them together too because I understand the USC is a disappointment, but to win the game the way they won it two weeks ago, um, if you win in the Coliseum. And then you turn around and you win in a really, really difficult place in Corvallis in a very, very bitter emotional game. Then, yeah, it's it's hard for me. It's going to be, I think it's going to be impossible for the committee to ignore that. So, I don't know if any contender has a unit that's as much of a liability as Washington's defense, right? Um, I think they're 99th in uh, in in total defense, and it it depends on how you. Uh, yeah, they've given up 409 yards a game. Now, some of that's a byproduct of the pace they play offense, and some of it's a byproduct of the conference that they play in. They are 50th in the country in rush defense. Um, I think Damian Martinez, the the Oregon State tailback, is maybe the country's most underrated player. He's 13th leading rusher. He was Pac-12 offensive freshman of the year last year. He's gained 1,024 yards this year. He's got seven rushing touchdowns. He is a general menace behind a veteran offensive line that's been the linchpin of this whole rise under Jonathan Smith. Uh, I really feel like the Beave game plan is going to be very simple. Just keep smashing up front into the wall. I don't know if it's going to be the Sharon Moore game plan, but um, I don't think it's going to be much different. The, the toughness of Washington, the medal of Washington is going to be tested. Research Stadium is going to be electric on Saturday afternoon out there. I mean, it is going to be a monster setting. And uh, it will be interesting to see if Washington can bow up, stop the run, control the line of scrimmage, and uh, and, and go toe-to-toe with Oregon State. You know, I'm looking at the, uh, at the efficiency numbers on defense. And Pete, you're right. Uh, among the contenders, Washington is has the lowest ranked defensive efficiency ranking 42nd you know measuring how effective you are how much what percentage of yards teams gain against you depending on down and distance is basically a rudimentary explanation of efficiency you know what strikes me you know you know who's second worst on that list among the contenders in terms of defensive efficiency 
They're better. They're about 20, 19 spots better than Washington, but they're second worst among the contenders. Georgia? Georgia. Hmm. Wow. That, that's a little bit of a surprise, hmm. huh? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Another zit on old Mona. Yeah, exactly. And that's all <laughs> it is. Because, again, we go back, Ryan, we brought it up earlier. I, I don't recall who said it, but somebody had a great line that if uh, Georgia cares enough about you to blow you out, that's the ultimate sign of respect. So we're yeah. going to find out how much they respect Big Orange on Saturday, I guess. Yeah, huh? I'll be there. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah it's uh, I'll be there in a working capacity until kickoff, and then uh, I'll decide if I leave at halftime or not. <laughs> yeah, do, but, <laughs> do, do you think on this Oregon State game, uh, Pete, do you, th- do you think how much of this emotion will trickle into the players? I mean, obviously they want to win. They still have a path to the Pac-12 championship game, regardless oh, yeah. of what, uh, you know, what, court has decided about the the pack two and the victory that they got there but there's going to be some emotion i would think uh that trickles into the players about being about being left behind because you can uh, football players are a smart lot but they're also eager to find a cause and if you can provide them one they will jump on it very often so I don't think they're talking about preliminary injunctions in the locker room. Nor do I. But you. But know I what do. I, mean. I yeah. do think they're talking about the what the heck is this going to look like next year? Mm-hmm. Who are we going to play? Mm-hmm. Like right now, Oregon State doesn't have a full football schedule for next year, and that quickly, instead of preliminary injunctions, it's transfer portal. Do we stay? Do we stick together? Um, one of the one of the little dollops of magic with what Jonathan Smith has created out there is that they've had very little attrition. They lost uh, the linebacker to LSU for a big payday. Um, Spates. Yeah, yeah, Omar Spates. Omar Spates. It, but like for the most part, they have been able to keep a really good roster, which speaks to culture as much as it does their NIL. And so that, you know, there's a human element to this, like, is this last call? Do we all stick together? Like there are hard questions looming very soon. Uh, it seemingly has forged Oregon State together um, at at this juncture. But I'll be really curious: is this their is this their great last stand, and they can kind of bully their way into maybe the that long shot at Pac twelve title game? Um, yeah, it'll be a special night. Like there, there's never quite been a scene setting moment like this in Oregon State history. And I've been looking at the roster. I was looking at it last night, actually. A third of that roster is from the state of Washington, Oregon State. Hmm. And and almost all of them are Seattle, Tacoma. I mean, right there in the, in the backyard. And so, you know, there's familiarity there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's interesting talking to, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this too, but talking to the coaches and the players who have true roots in the Pac-12. I mean, the real West Coast people. And they're really raw about all this. Oh, yeah. And 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 I mean and so I think for those players, I think there's absolutely that moment. And um and you know we're at this awkward stage now, right? So starting this weekend, this is where the long goodbye happens. And I'm already looking ahead at the conference championship weekends when we're going to ha- potentially have all these commissioners handing all these trophies to either teams that are leaving or teams that they're in the middle of. Uh, we're all in court suing each other. Or even a Florida State and ACC, right? You know, who who spent all of the summer saying we don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> so yeah. it's gonna be it's gonna be quite the awkward championship weekend, regardless. But but it starts now. But I but I I really believe that yes, no one's talking legal lingo going into the game. But but there's an absolute uh, bitterness and uh, uh, you know the big middle finger. I think for a lot of these teams, particularly Oregon State, 
with all those Washington kids, man. It's uh, they, they already felt that way about Washington anyway, and now I think they're going to carry that into the game. You picking them to win, Ryan? Since you're not on the pick spot on Friday? No, I mean I, I, I all I keep picking Washington simply because I love Penix, and and all they do is figure out a way to win, and so until they lose, you know I'm rolling with them. But uh, but that being said, it wouldn't it wouldn't break my heart. And plus, and, and I'm I'm so happy for DJ, you know, getting a second chance at quarterback at a Power Five, and you know exiting Clemson ugly when he was going to be the next, you know, the heir to that quarterback throne and to see him out there being in the national conversation, it wouldn't break my heart at all if he had a big national moment to potentially set the stage for another one and remind everyone he's still playing. He's just at a place where not a lot of people travel. Well, he's, he's had a really good season too. He's a and, good kid. You know, yeah. that, that, that's the thing is I, so, so that's for all the knock of the transfer portal. I do love seeing, players get chances elsewhere and get a do-over. And and I'm so glad that he has received one and, and is and is taking advantage of that. And probably a little bit of um a little bit of satisfaction in the knowledge that maybe it wasn't all his fault. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. offensive yeah. issues that they had running down the hill. Hadn't been growing great right without him. So yeah, 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 exactly right. But they're getting it together too. So yeah. uh they they've found themselves a little bit here late in the ACC season. Uh, Ryan, always great to talk to you, my man. Thanks for being with us. Um, We'll make the picks on Friday in this College Game Day podcast. That's when Stanford Steve will join us as well. We urge you to subscribe to the podcast, or you can download this wherever it is that you prefer to get your podcast. Back on Friday with the picks. Thanks for listening.